It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Monday, November 6th, 2023. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. You may have heard of whale song, the patterns of sound that whales make to communicate with each other. But what about glacier song? or seagrass song. Alaska-raised composer Matthew Bertner is sharing an unusual kind of music at this year's Sitka Whale Fest. KCAW's Meredith Reddick spoke with Bertner about how he makes music from the sounds of Alaska's wilderness. Matthew Bertner once wrote a nocturne for moths. I was thinking of these moths and how they're just like they have these beautiful ears. Uh, they're like these kind of feathers on their on their throat. These two feathers. You see a picture of a moth that has these two like different sized um, kind of feather like things. So I thought, well, I'll make some music for the moth so that they could he- use their hearing to like hear something beautiful too. Moths can't hear the music we listen to since their ears are attuned to higher frequencies. So Bertner wrote something they could hear. The resulting piece, Moth Song, is one of many works Bertner has composed over his career in eco-acoustics, which he says all boils down to an effort to help humans better connect with the natural world. Bertner, who was born in Naknek and grew up around Alaska, says the sounds of the natural world have always resonated with him. When I was learning music, I would play music outside and, and with that presence of the environment. So they, they were somehow connected to me, the sounds of the wind and the snow and the water and the sounds of, you know, my saxophone or the piano, whatever I was, was playing. Bertner has now built an award-winning career around turning nature into music, using both recorded sound and scientific data that he transforms into sound. One of his current projects focuses on the seasonal changes of an Arctic lagoon. Scientists monitored the lagoon's temperature, salinity, light, and currents over the course of a year, and Bertner transformed that data into sound that allows listeners to hear how the lagoon shifts with the seasons. We get a kind of sonic sense of the way the ecosystem works, the dynamics of it. And it's actually like very pronounced in the sound, much more impactful than looking at a graph of it. Recording the elusive sounds of glaciers, seagrass beds, and cooling lava isn't easy, and Bertner says your standard microphone probably won't cut it. When you're dealing with like, you know, tundra, or, you know, a a river covered in, you know, three feet of ice and you want to record that there aren't really you know (laughs) ready-made devices for that and so a lot of it is figuring out what you might what you might hear there because you can't really always know that's why in a way why we're going there he says there's always some amount of risk when you're recording in extreme environments i don't know i just have a kind of yolo approach to it where i'm just like you know, I'll, I'll save and save and save and save money and write grants and I'll get this one piece of gear and then I'll just go like throw it out in the ocean and like hope for the best. Bertner sees his work as a way to open humans up to an expanded awareness of the natural world. Music is, we think of that as a human expression, but if we extend, extend life and humanness or beingness to the glacier, 
then certainly it is making music. You know, if it has, if it has the characteristics of a being, it would probably make music too. If we don't recognize that music, that's really our own shortcoming, not the glacier's shortcoming. You can find Bertner's work at matthewbertner.com. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Meredith Reddick. A new scientific paper published this fall shows that the pink salmon population is booming in the North Pacific Ocean, and climate change is helping it happen. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, the new evidence suggests that pinks are not just out-competing other salmon species, but they're affecting the whole ecosystem, from the microscopic to large marine whales. Pink salmon numbers have skyrocketed due to global warming. While many species throughout the world are struggling to adjust to hotter temperatures, pink salmon are thriving. Salmon researcher Greg Rugaroni is the lead author of a new 40-page study published in the scientific journal Marine Ecology Progress Series. Pink salmon are, are one of the winners in terms of climate change. But for every winner, there is a loser, or in this case, several. The new research shows that the spike in pink salmon in recent decades is affecting the ocean's fragile food chain. Pink salmon run on an every-other-year cycle. The population in the odd-number years is 25% greater than even-number years. And when pink numbers are up, other species are down. From phytoplankton to zooplankton, forage fishes, all five species of Pacific salmon, and marine birds, um, it all points to pink salmon. Scientists don't know all the reasons that pink salmon are doing better in warmer waters, but they do know that pinks are better than other salmon species at finding prey and growing from their nutrients. In fact, they're the fastest-growing salmon, ready to spawn in just two years, three times faster than kings. Plus, hatcheries are bolstering their population, pumping roughly 5 billion salmon annually into the Pacific Ocean, mostly pinks and chums. The general assumption is that the ocean has significant capacity to support them all. But Rugaroni says his new research proves that's not the case. I think the evidence that we provided in that synthesis um, leads to the observation that the ocean has a limited carrying capacity to support both wild salmon plus massive numbers of uh, hatchery chum and pink salmon. His new research shows that when pink salmon are especially abundant, that's when other species suffer. Pinks eat a ton of prey from zooplankton to small fish. In turn, this creates smaller and fewer other salmon species, as well as steelhead trout. Less growth in Alaska's herring population, a 33% lower birth rate in humpback whales in southeast Alaska, and higher mortality and lower birth rates in endangered orcas in Puget Sound. The study also connects the pink salmon cycle to nearly a dozen species of seabirds. They laid more eggs in even years, good years, than they did in odd years, bad years. Alan Springer is a co-author of the study. He's a seabird researcher with the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He says they got data from scientists all over the world who found biennial patterns. A variety of then associated reproductive kinds of parameters all varied. Uh, in lockstep with that even-odd-year pattern in pink salmon. Things like emaciated and starving shearwater birds on an every-other-year cycle. 
The scientists say there is no evidence for other explanations for the biennial patterns that have been recorded. You know, sea surface temperature or wind speeds or these atmospheric indexes of whatever um, fail to show any kind of similar patterns. So that's kind of what for us is the bottom line. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game is skeptical of the paper's findings. Commissioner Doug Vincent Lang, in a written response, called the paper a hypothesis and said it's the subject of an ongoing debate among scientists. He said, quote, the conclusions put forth are stated as more definitive than the strength of the evidence that backs them up. The researchers, like Rugaroni, agree that it's a hypothesis, but a strong one. More research is, is certainly needed. But this is what the data shows. It doesn't mean you have all the answers as to why. Exactly. But again, with the synthesis paper, an important part of it is just the consistency in the relationships uh, across all these different uh, taxa. Taxa meaning a biological group. The authors hope that other scientists take their findings and dig deeper into all the ways the large pink salmon population could be affecting other species in the North Pacific. And timing is of the essence, as ocean temperatures are expected to rise. Reporting for Coast Alaska in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. South Seward Street in Juneau has been renamed Heritage Way. The change was proposed by Sea Alaska Heritage Institute President Rosita Worrell, and the signs were swapped in a ceremony on Wednesday. Today, we celebrate the removal of this stain in our history, and we celebrate reclaiming our history with a new street name, Heritage Way. Seward Street's namesake, William Seward, was Secretary of State when the U.S. bought Alaska from Russia. Despite his pivotal role as the nation's top diplomat during the Civil War, Worrell said Seward spoke disparagingly about Alaska natives and did not see them as the owners of the land. During the ceremony, Vicki Sobolov painted a red streak across the old Seward sign on behalf of a very grateful Worrell. Thank you, Vicki, for doing that. She saved me. I was supposed to do that. And you would all have been terrified watching me try to climb that ladder. Thank you, Vicki. Deputy Mayor Michelle Hale spoke on behalf of the city. And I am so pleased to right perhaps one small wrong and rename this part of the street as Heritage Way. Hale said she's seen the impact Sea Alaska Heritage Institute has had on revitalizing Southeast Alaska Native culture. The Juneau Assembly unanimously voted to support the change in May. Worrell thanked the city for its support. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News. 